everyone remain calm. Welcome to the 51st episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic Park. In this episode, we have some news, and I break down the recent video from Mike Hill that explained the subtext of Jurassic Park while slightly disparaging Jurassic World. Then I have a Great Sight Bay segment with Lord Christine, where we actually review all the subtext, symbolism, and metaphors of Jurassic World that you might have missed, and we'll wrap it up with a great audio clip from the UK premiere of Jurassic Park back in 1993. So why don't we get things started off with a bit of Jurassic news from around the world. Eighteen minutes and your company catches up on ten years of research. Access main program. Access main security. These pictures were taken in hospital in Costa Rica 48 hours ago. I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but look. Boy, we hate being right all the time. Today, I guarantee it. The New York Times recently sat down with Steven Spielberg to talk about his upcoming film, The BFG. Steven talked about how the project came to be, melding humans and technology, but also about how his confidence is sometimes his enemy. He went on to say this about The Lost World. My sequels aren't as good as my originals because I go on to every sequel I've made and I'm too confident. This movie made a gazillion dollars, which justifies the sequel, so it comes in like it's going to be a slam dunk and I wind up making an inferior movie to the one before. I'm talking about The Lost World and Jurassic Park. We've known Steven hasn't looked very highly upon his Jurassic Park sequel, but I think he's being a bit too far inside his head on this one. Now sure, The Lost World isn't the majestic masterpiece that is Jurassic Park, but it is an adventurous follow-up that boldly traverses new territory, and I know along with myself, many others absolutely love that film. So Steven, I know you're listening here to this podcast, don't be too hard on yourself. You'll find a link to the article in the show notes. This next one comes from Baptiste Couder, and he found a post from Matchbox World on Instagram stating that a new Jurassic Park Explorer-themed Matchbox car will be debuting in November. Now, this one is based off a newer model of the Explorer with that familiar Explorer paint scheme from the first film. It also comes with some cool sidesteps, a roof rack, lights, and a push bar on the front. So, even though it's a slightly modified version from the original film, I still cannot wait to get my hands on one of these in November. If you want to take a look, check out the link within the show notes. Oh, there it is. There it is. Where's Aunt Claire? Seven o'clock tomorrow night on the East Dock. Make sure he gets it right. But it's alive! And everyone on the planet is going to line up to appreciate it and everything done. People would say they could see the fleas. Oh, I could see the fleas. Mommy, can't you see the fleas? Are, are these characters uh, auto-erotic? No, no, no. Come on! 
So I'm sure you've seen that video that's been floating around this past week featuring designer Mike Hill as he breaks down the subtext of Jurassic Park. Now, I want to start off by saying this. His analysis of Jurassic Park was stellar. Fantastic. You can't get much better of a breakdown than that. There is so much going on beneath the surface of Jurassic Park that you might not have even realized before watching his 30-minute talk here. Now, I kind of want to analyze his discussion piece in a slightly more condensed version here since I think it really deserves a bit of a takedown. Now, in the video, his attitude kind of comes off as arrogant from the start as he obviously begins to rip apart Jurassic World. Now, you can kind of talk about Jurassic Park without ripping Jurassic World. Um, And I know that there's people out there that do not like Jurassic World. They completely deserve that opportunity. It's okay. I don't care. I love Jurassic World, but I know people don't. Now, let's not harp on things and point out the shortcomings where there aren't any. Hill starts off his dialogue by comparing Jurassic Park and Jurassic World and stating that Jurassic World left an emptiness where it should have been happiness. Okay, again, that's fine. Not everybody likes the film. He then goes on to talk about foundations, how Jurassic Park has great foundations, and that's what makes that film stand the test of time. I agree. Jurassic Park has great foundations. But you know what the foundation of Jurassic World is? Jurassic Park. There's three films that came before Jurassic World. That's the foundation. And we also have to move on from there. At this point, he says while talking about Jurassic World... In the case of Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, one story holds up for 25 years and we still love it. The other one was released, like, what, like a year ago? Does anyone even remember what the characters' names were? Yes. Yes, we do. And everybody that's involved in the community can name all of the characters, and many of those even on the outskirts of the community can do so as well. I think this segment kind of points out his lack of fandom when it comes to Jurassic Park. Now, of course, he doesn't have to be a super fan, but I think this shows that he doesn't love the series as much as we do and definitely doesn't know the character names. I think it's a shame that through that, he's spreading his disinterest onto others. If we look at Jurassic Park and Jurassic World, they're both blockbusters. They're both big summer releases. And they're based on the high concept format. In the case of Jurassic Park, it's what if we could clone dinosaurs? Now, today's blockbusters, Jurassic World included, they take that high concept and they take it literally. They say, well, how many dinosaurs can we have on screen? Now, of course, Jurassic World wouldn't do that. This is the fourth film in the franchise. And there needs to be an expansion of detail and story and dinosaurs. We've seen it before. So why in the world would we repeat the same formula that Jurassic Park put on the screen over 20 years ago? We could certainly argue that The Lost World had even more dinosaurs in that film, and that came directly after Jurassic Park. This portion of his his discussion talks about family and the context of Jurassic World being based around dinosaurs, but I disagree. I think Jurassic World is based around family, and that's the main motivation of this story. And his context of comparing... Uh, family between um, you know Grant and Ellie in Jurassic Park and the, the relationship from the start to the end of the film, you know how there's a drastic change between those characters. I think that motivation still stands in Jurassic World, and there is a drastic change from when Claire starts the film to where she ends the film. Same goes for Owen; they both kind of change. Now we're going to dig deeper into that in the next segment, but uh, let's move on. 
The next segment of the video is where Mike Hill relaxes his stance on bashing Jurassic World and just goes on to discuss how great Jurassic Park is beneath the surface. Now, it's really fantastic and I highly suggest watching it. I'm not going to repeat anything he said, so make sure you go check out the video. But at the same time, I can't suggest going to watch it because he does constantly rag on Jurassic World. Even after that main segment where he discusses how great Jurassic Park is, he still goes on to bash it. Um, and now, especially in this clip where he talks about the structure of Jurassic Park and then compares it to Jurassic World. If you look at Jurassic Park, the reason that it stands strong 23 years later is because its foundations are strong. Its foundations are built on allegory, archetypes, metaphor, subtext, motifs, and symbolism. And Jurassic World... <laughs> now, as you can hear everybody laughing, well, you know what? That's because after listing all those great attributes of Jurassic Park, he listed Chris Pratt, dinosaurs, 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 and, and well, about four more times he listed dinosaurs. And for some reason, it's become cool to poke fun at Jurassic World for not being the masterpiece that is Jurassic Park. Well, I'd ask you to stick around and listen to this week's Site B, where Lord Christine and I break down much of the subtext and symbolism that Mike Hill may have missed. I ask you to look beneath the surface while watching Jurassic World, and maybe you'll see it too. Explore the park like never before. Fly around Isla Nubla and visit park attractions. Get up close and personal with our dinosaurs. And experience Jurassic World the way it was meant to be experienced. Jurassic World 3D Project. Download it today for free. No force on earth or heaven could get me on that island. Site B, don't worry. I'm not making the same uh, mistakes again. I know. Okay, so there's another island with dinosaurs. No yes, fence. Site B. And you want to send people in? Yes. A very few people. Yes. It's not a research expedition anymore. It's a rescue operation. It's leaving right now. You this cannot land on this island. This is Isla Sorna. Site B. Yes. Uh, we're on Isla Sorna and we need to find, we need to talk to the boat. Site B. Oh, a lady. Enough. Wrong frequency. So today I was wandering around Isla Sorna, the infamous Site B, rummaging through some decayed compound when I heard somebody yelling about a stegoceratops. Uh, that's when I found Lord Christine here. You may know her as at Lord underscore Christine on Twitter and also for her fan fiction. How are you doing today, Christine? I'm doing okay. How about you? I'm doing pretty good. I mean, the island's nice today. It's, it's nice weather here. Uh, you know, this, this compound that we're in is a little dungy, but I think we'll, we'll it's pass nice. by. It's, it's much better than J.A. Bayona's backyard. I, I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> like he has a new rose bush and I, like he just got that yesterday. I think he suspects someone's watching him. Yeah, I think you got to plant those things all around the outside to make sure nobody, you know, spies on him or anything. So he's playing it safe. Yeah, quite. <laughs> so, you know, I think after the the release of Jurassic World, uh, many people got hung up on hybrids and high heels. Some of the people missed some of the amazing symbolism metaphors behind the film. Um, and I know you have a ton to say about this. It has a lot beneath the surface. So, so what's your take on some of this stuff? 
Well, I think the primary focus of Jurassic World, like if I had to put it in a thesis statement, it's about how much we let the world uh, sort of tame us and how much we become sort of civilized in this manner, what it means to be a part of a family and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and family definitely plays a huge role in in every movie so far that they've made. Definitely, like Jurassic World like begins with the family and it like right from the very start, they're hammering in this family values thing. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like people really critiqued that aspect a lot as well. Um, I, I think they they couldn't get over the fact that there was, you know, oh, there's this divorce, but we don't hear anything else about it. Um, and, you know, what, what's the point of that end of the story? But I feel like the family and those problems, the family problems, make a lot of difference in the Jurassic World. And uh, you can find that, that same issue basically throughout the entire series. There's always some sort of family drama, whether it's – It's very yeah. much like about Claire and how it's like mm-hmm. sort of reflecting on her values because at the very beginning, it's like uh, – because at the very end of the movie, let's start with that. Um, Owen and Claire, they sort of get together and that's the highlight of it. But at the very beginning, it begins with a separation of uh, Karen and uh, mm-hmm. uh, what, what's his face? The, the Scott? Yeah. Scott, yeah, I can't even yes. remember his name. <laughs> it, it was it was Scott. Yeah, and yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but uh, you know the song "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a very specific edit during that when it's playing in the background. Um, when the singer, I don't know who sings it, but w- when they say "Our troubles will be out of sight" during "Our Troubles," mm-hmm. it uh, cuts to Scott Mitchell, so it's implying that he's you know the trouble of the family because he's sort of ending this thing. Yeah. Yeah, and also because they're probably you know they're sending away the kids as well. So to them, the trouble—they're not even going to see the trouble, in a way. Yeah, you know, it's it's very much like you know uh, pretending that nothing's going wrong. Like you know when uh, Karen hugs uh, Gray and she, but then she just makes this face that's just so pained and sad, and you just yeah. feel really bad for her. Oh yeah, and it, it seems like they're they're hiding it from the kids. Even though, you know, Gray stumbles upon, you know, some letters and stuff like that. He looks up the lawyers. Um, but it seems like they're really hiding a lot from the kids. Yeah, it's, it's very much... I, I, I really like that aspect of the film. It sort of reminded me of my own uh, parents' separation. It was a little bit... Bring up those memories of, you know, everyone's oh, yeah. trying to hide something. You kind of justify it to yourself by saying, oh, I'll get two of everything. But really, you're just sort of hurting on the inside. Oh, yeah. That, that nev- that's not a good, like, explanation. That doesn't help at all. <laughs> no. It's, no. It's always... You, you just sort of justify these things to yourself. And, you know, it's like, well, it's okay. I can get through this. And, you know, it's... But it really does affect you personally. And so all of this themes of like getting together and then separating and what it means to love someone, it's very important. Yeah. And I think at that point, they're they're trying to show off the relationship between the brothers there. And he bas- uh, Zach basically says that that statement as, you know, oh, just forget about it. You'll get two of everything. You know, he's not really caring at that moment. And, and yeah, God, I remember yeah. I did that same thing with my sister once or twice. <laughs> you know, I, I sort of did that. Like, I'm like, oh, my God, stop crying. Just like deal with it you know and i had to sort of be the more mature one and you know it's really hard when you're a kid oh absolutely yeah yeah i know you know a lot of people go through that same situation myself included and you know it's tough and you need basically a bigger or somebody you know in your family to help you through that zach really wasn't there for gray at that moment but he does kind of learn to be by his side throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, it's very much like Claire as well. You know, she's mm-hmm. very absent from the family. Like, if, if you didn't see, you know, like, based on just the contact photos on the screens of the phones, like, Karen's with her family and then Claire's just alone in her contact photos. So that really says something about them subtly. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of people just harp on the fact that Claire is not a good character or, you know, she's, she doesn't have enough depth, depth to her character and that, you know, they're obviously harping about these heels and, but there's so much more to her character um, so much more backstory and I think so much change involved in her character. God, yeah, there's so much like you can even see like physically she changes and you know it's again mm-hmm. like I brought up this point several times that like uh, the Indominus Rex and the T-Rex and them fighting at the end that's a reflection of Claire's inner sort of turmoil because you know she starts off as this really perfect engineered thing where it's all in a sterile environment and then you know she overcomes this by like um, uh you know, becoming more natural like the T-Rex. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I also think it kind of parallels, you know, Grant's transformation in the first film. Because you saw him at the very beginning. He's all he's harping about kids and, oh, what, you want one of those? You know, they're noisy, exp- expensive, they smell. Yeah, that's a good point as well you know? um, with, with Grant because he loses his hat, which is sort of like a symbol of his uh, paleontology. So it's like just like Claire's sort of stripping off all of this white perfection of her clothing, mm-hmm. he, he loses his hat. So it's both of them. And, you know, it's sort of especially with Claire at the very end because um, her uh, tank top, is that what you call them? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sh- it, yeah. Yeah, undershirt, whatever. It's purple, and purple mm-hmm. is a, a symbol of royalty like the T-Rex, you know? Okay. And so yeah. there's so much color symbolism in Jurassic World, and I think a lot of people don't notice that. Like with Owen Grady, he wears the um, uh, blue shirt, and blue is a symbol of infinite possibilities as a scene in the control room. And it's like sort of this wild, untamed thing, you know, where you, you can have all the women in the world, and, you know, it's just sort of you know limitless and then but over that he has the brown vest and brown is obviously a very natural color and so he's sort of shielding this infiniteness with his um sort of natural self and so just like claire he has to learn to be tamed by bringing someone else into his life yeah exactly and and you get that that relationship struggle right there towards the beginning of the film when when they're debating and you know she comes to him and says you know we're gonna need you for something you need to come with us but then they start talking about their subtle relationship and how they just don't really get along. They're not very compatible. And I really it's love very that obvious. Scene. Oh, yeah. That, that I love it too. bungalow scene, I just like – a lot of people didn't like it when it came out. But um, And I can see why. But at the same time, there's a lot of subtleties to that scene. Like for instance, do you notice how they place themselves? The blocking is very specific. So it starts off with Owen, you know, sitting by the motorcycle and sort of working on it. And, you know, motorcycles are also sort of a symbol of, you know, carefree, wild, untamed mm-hmm. oh, yeah. stuff. And so he's working on it. And then he uh, gets up with this little uh, creaky thing. I don't know. I, I'm not a mechanic. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I forget what he had specifically. I'm the, I, I don't remember. Was it a wrench or something maybe? I don't know. It, well, I can envision <laughs> it, but I, I don't know what it's called. But anyway, he gets up and then he goes towards his house. And then Claire follows him there. And they're sort of talking about more personal stuff mm-hmm. near the house. So it's like a symbol of, you know, home. Yeah. And then... Uh, afterwards, you know, she's always trying to put herself in a higher position than him because she has that kind of a, an attitude towards yeah. life. And then uh, one thing I really love about the scene is it uh, subtly introduces the fact that he has a knife because he uh, is wiping his hands and then he adjusts his shirt or something. He does something and um, he, you, the way it's framed, you can really see his knife and it's just a nice little touch. So you can know his knife is not there without him saying, hey, guess what? I have a knife. Yeah. Yeah, something like that is 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 a feature that you'd basically carry around all the time. So that's part of basically himself in a way. You know, it's not just a you know a tool or something like that. It's it's something that's with him all the time. 
is very much a part of that. And, you know, he is the sort of wild adventurer. And one thing that is kind of funny about uh, the two of them is although they have, like, kind of opposite views, they're really more similar than they think. And that's why I really love – I know the title of – it sounds stupid, but the poop scene, you know, where she's smearing poop all over herself. <laughs> yeah. Like, because there's really a lot of character dynamics going along there. That's where we learn for the first time, like, what kind of a person Owen is, like, really. He's very antisocial. He doesn't really like human beings. And, you know, he acts with, like, sarcasm and disdain when Claire is talking about uh, how she likes people. And then, you know – and then there's Claire, who also doesn't uh, associate with people on a personal level, but it's for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's really interesting, I think, how they're so similar and so different. Like, another interesting part of the movie, I think, is when, um, at the very beginning, Claire refers to the, all the animals as assets, and you know, she says, it, it escaped and stuff. And Owen always says, you know, for the endowment tricks, at least, he says, she, she always... But then... Uh, at one point through the movie, they switch, and he starts calling it an it because he realizes it's not really a dinosaur. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then Claire, Claire starts calling it a she. And so it's like showing how their viewpoints have changed. So, again, they've both adapted themselves to uh, enter a relationship in a, you know, sort of tame... I, I always use this tame word because, especially with Owen, it's it's a lot about sort of taming your wild spirit. Because if you think about it, he's the adventurous man, but now he's going to settle down and, you know, be with his woman and... Yeah. Especially with the raptors, I always found them, they have sort of like a, I don't know how much I should go into this, but they have sort of like a sexual connotation to them, where his inner desires to, you know, be free, and it's like, he's keeping them, but you can't really control that stuff, you can just sort of hope that it doesn't turn on you. Yeah, well, you can definitely tell, and and the problem with a lot of the criticism debuted from that specific scene when they first met. Or not oh, first definitely. met when we first met them together as as like a duo, and and I think it, it came from Joss Whedon, uh, you know, who directed the Avengers. He kind of came out and criticized that scene, and you know, there was a lot of sexism issues w- around it. But I feel like people are just missing these deeper connections, like you just pointed out that scene specifically, and showing how he is basically, you know, macho and 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 trying to be the man, and she, then she tries to kind of get over him and be better and bigger than him and uh you know i think that's a really good representation of their dynamic at first yeah and it's like they're both adapting to each other like Mm -hmm. claire has to learn to become more natural like spreading poop all over herself and stuff (laughs) yeah well even if (laughs) you take a look at that opposite yeah if you take a look at that scene i feel like she almost does it just to kind of show that look i'll do this i can do this too you know i'm not just a pushover or anything you know and and she does it a little bit over the top (laughs) but she definitely did it yeah, she, she overdid it is all. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, that's another symbol of um, Claire sort of becoming more natural. Like, you know, especially with – I love the line of the vanilla-scented lotion because vanilla, again, is another sort of white substance. And it's also – I think it's very specific that she was cast at, like as a redhead because it sort of implies fair skin. And it's, again, with sun, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Maserani, he says to her, you know, you need to get sun. Yeah. And – I sort of interpret that as, you know, because if you've ever known somebody with red hair, you know that if they step out into the sun, they will pretty much die. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just like they, they have a yeah. tendency to get more like Burnt freckles. instantly, yeah. Yes. And so it's like you want to enjoy life but at the same time you're cautious and you know that you're going to be sacrificing something mm-hmm. if you do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think he's basically telling her, look, you got to add some more color to your life. You know, you're so bland yeah. and, you know, you're such a, a, you know, a sterile person. You need to add some more fun and get out and change the way you are a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely that st- uh, sterile-ness that makes her uh, distinct as a person because she just so wants to be this perfect thing that, you know, doesn't have to deal with emotional consequences and is just perfect at her job and Mm -hmm. but but really no human can be that way just like no human can also be like oh and where they're all adventurous all the time you have to have a sacrifice yeah they're they're definitely one-sided at the start you know but i think by the end everybody changes for the better and like i said before you know claire really mirrors grant's change you know he started as a basically a kid hater and then by the end of the film he has two kids on you know in both of his arms and ellie's looking at him like you know good job you did it and the same thing happens for Claire. Broke up in the third film. Yeah, that was terrible. You know, that you know, oh, I guess it's going to happen sometime. But it was a complete shock. But uh, especially after the ending there. So who knows? We, maybe we'll see something similar in uh, Jurassic World too. If Bayonne yeah, I'm hoping way. that Claire is going to be pregnant uh, oh, yeah? during the thing. I, I, you know, it'd be great if she gave birth while raptors were attacking. Oh god, that would be terrible. But I would watch the hell out of that. I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> so so you definitely talked a lot about her her style and everything and then you know what she has underneath but what do you think about her comparison with what she's wearing to what John Hammond was wearing Well I think again it's that idealism where there's a perfection that you can't really achieve and you can pretend to be like that but um really it's not going to work like you could also very well compare her to sort of Ellie where she sort of throughout the movie she strips down and like mm-hmm. becomes this bare bones essential woman you know thing and so she has a a few aspects of like cuz one thing i think people make the mistake of is thinking that one specific character in Jurassic World is supposed to be a translation of the original cast and really that's not true because uh, Ian Malcolm is separated into both Owen and Lowry, because uh, yeah. Lowry is the sassy one who talks back about all of the, you know, he's very fourth wall breaking. Well, not exactly fourth wall breaking, but he's very sassy. Yeah. He just, well, he, he addresses the concerns. He lampshades everything. And then Owen is also the one who's saying, you know, this isn't going to work, but he's more serious about it. Mm-hmm. Well, he's yeah. a little bit joking at the beginning, you know, when he's talking about the Indominus Rex and stuff. <laughs> But then, you know, and then Mr. Mizrani is also a part of being Hammond. And so all these characters, you know, they split into different parts. No one character is translated 100% into Jurassic World. Like, it's not just a remake of Jurassic Park. Oh, no, no, definitely not. And, and But there are, you know, there's these subtleties that, that translate. But, you know, there's other ones that don't. So it's not like they're taking – it's not for a, like a one-to-one comparison. It has several aspects of it, and it has some that are new and, and different re- representations. And, you know, I think there is something to all these comparisons. But I wonder um, – one of the big things a lot of people are questioning about on the internet is whether, um, you know, Mizrani is either a literal translation of Hammond or what – you know, what his take on Hammond was at all because – People are saying Mizrani I, – I like to say Mizrani misinterpreted Hammond's uh, you know, dying wish. Um, some people say he just you – know, it's just – there's some yeah. sort of incongruency between The Lost World and Jurassic World. What do you take on that? I would really love to believe that uh, as John Hammond was dying, he was really senile and he just didn't know what he was saying. He was like really <laughs> – it had been like pumping dopamine into his system to deal with the yeah. pain. He's like, Mr. Mizrani, I want you to – 
you know, just make another park with dinosaurs. It seems like such a good idea. You know, just give me more morphine. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, I like to think that that's what actually happened. He's like, okay, I, I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> I'm not good at accents. <laughs> I'm terrible at accents. No, I think I, I got the picture. It just definitely, uh, you know, came off as Mizrani. I do a decent American accent, actually. Yeah. I think this is pretty okay. Yeah. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. No, but, I, you know, I I think that's definitely, you know, in regards to what Mizrani thought. I don't know. Maybe that is what he heard from, from Hammond. But in my sense, I like to think of it almost as, you know, uh, Mizrani, you know, talked to Hammond and Hammond said, look, you need to take care of this place for me. You need to nurture it. You need to do something with this. Make sure it doesn't get into the wrong hands. And maybe Mizrani just came in and, you know, he's he's a bit of a capitalist, I think you could say. And he just came in and, and did his own thing, took his own take on Hammond's words. And that's why we have another park. Even if Hammond, you know, towards the end of The Lost World said, you know, we need to distance ourselves from these creatures and let life find a way the thing with john hammond you know in the dying wish i i would be more keen to say that that was something that wasn't really thought of a lot and they sort of made a mistake but you could definitely justify it with these fan theories and stuff oh yeah yeah i i think we we tend to just look into some of this stuff too much you know we've been pointing out a lot of good things so far but some of it you kind of just have to make up yourself you know yeah it's just just right in your own head it's, it's like at the beginning of Jurassic Park 3 where, where you know, there's the mist and then you're like, what, what was it that attacked the boat? And then the director's <laughs> like, oh, well, you, you can make up your own answer. Like, fine, I'll just oh. say it was magical trodons. Yeah, that, that's, that's one of the things. It's so aggravating to see, you know, something just skipped over like that. So sometimes you can let them go. Sometimes you can't. So that's, that's yeah, I, I can let it go for something like Jurassic World because mm-hmm. there's, there's bigger focuses but when it's something like Jurassic Park 3 where there was such a big focus it's like you really do need to know what attacked the boat and you, you can say like it was probably the Spinosaurus because it can swim or whatever Yeah. but then you know but with something like Jurassic World even if it slightly has a bit of those mistakes you can just sort of justify those more than just having an invisible dinosaur yeah and I wonder how much of it like for I think for the people that already were going to hate the movie kind of saw some of these points and said like oh i can't get over this i'm not gonna like this movie it's too late they've screwed up and it reminds me of the high heels yeah everyone had a problem with that but they didn't see the symbolism behind it because they represent her pride Mm -hmm. and you're saying you know even though you may lose your blazer and all of your nice vanilla scented stuff you don't have to give up your pride you can still have that as inconvenient as it is you don't have to give up what matters to you yeah, and that's not the type of person she is. She's not just going to go, you know, as far as we know, she's not just going to go and, like, throw on a set of boots and, and just go run around the jungle. That's not who she is. Plus, you know, you don't really have access to that kind of stuff at a theme park. <laughs> no, no. I don't I know, mean, maybe they sell Jurassic World shoes, but that would be kind of weird. <laughs> they're probably, like, kid sizes only. Yeah, they're, like, probably Crocs or something like that. Just strap them on. But, you know, I, there's definitely no instance in a movie. People can argue as much as they want for her to put them on or do something, change into sneakers. But if they had it's added that scene, though. yeah, but if they had added that scene, people would have been like, why are they wasting time showing her putting on shoes? I think mostly it's just a metaphor. I mean, it's like it's like if you said something like, um, 
You know, the aliens from Alien, this is a kind of weird example, but they're very phallic looking. And it's like saying, well, what if we made them look more like puppies? It's like, well, that's not the point. <laughs> the point is because there's symbolism behind it. And the yes. symbolism of the high heels is pride. Yes. So that's that's because, you know, pride is not convenient. If you have pride, you will probably get yourself killed faster than the people who don't because it's a dog eat dog world. And, you know, all the people who are this sort of at the rim of society, you know, just scrounging off other people. It's like, oh. <laughs> well, speaking of dog eat dog world, what is your take on the, the metaphors and the symbolism behind the Indominus Rex? It's very much like, you know, it lacks compassion, just like clay. You know, it, it kills everything without a thought. Mm hmm. And, you know, that's sort of how Claire is at the very beginning. You know, she's very sassy when she's introducing the Indominus Rex to all the clients. And she's saying, you know, you can sponsor this attraction and look at how great I am because I work here and I have a clipboard and stuff. She doesn't actually have a clipboard, but I imagine she does somewhere. <laughs> yeah, essentially. In her office somewhere. Absolutely. But th that's the thing. Like, you, you just mentioned sponsoring. And, and that's the, big, the biggest, you know, uh, symbolism behind this monster here is people wanted bigger, better – and, you know, they already have dinosaurs, and I think Lowry says it, you know, or no, I'm sorry, uh, Owen says it, you know. They're dinosaurs, wow enough. I wanted to actually play a little clip here. kind of, you know, describes what they were going for. And we heard about this, um, I believe they mentioned it on the Jurassic cast um, when Colin was on there. And it's that scene in Jurassic Park. And this basically kind of describes what they were going for with bigger and better and why, why they created the Indominus Rex. So just take a listen real quick and uh, we'll talk about it. Shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could. And before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox. And now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, you know, I think that perfectly describes... Um, you know what they were going for with the Indominus Rex. They needed oh, something. Very much so. Yeah, yeah, they needed something bigger, and they wanted to sell it. And obviously, they've got sponsorships all over this park. And uh, you know this this monster that they created definitely did them in in the end. If you think about it, it's like you know with all of this uh, marketing and stuff, you don't really think about all that stuff. Like. Just going down to like the Seven Eleven the other day, I was just you know I see Doritos with like Superman on, and it's like, what does Superman have to do with Doritos? You just, it's Nothing. all just about the money. It's, yeah, it's not. It's just like I recognize this thing, therefore I'm going to buy this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think the movie itself makes fun of itself, and it also makes fun of Hollywood and other corporate sponsorships. You know, it mentions baseball fields and stuff like that. Um, you know, because they have throughout this movie Samsung, Coke, Pepsi, Tostitos, Verizon, Mercedes. Uh, Margaritaville's yeah, in there, so they're basically making fun of the like the genre of you know big blockbuster movies, but they're also doing it themselves at the same time. So they're making fun of it, yet they do have all these sponsorships. It's kind well, of you can't uh, make fun of it if you don't have it in there because yeah. that's like the point of it. Oh yeah, it's the point, but it's like it's it's a thin line of of making fun of it, but also having it. It's it's kind of tough, and that's what a lot of people hate on is the fact that they do have these sponsorships, yet they make fun of it. So it is – it's a tough line to straddle. But I think they did it pretty well. Yeah, I think it's like, again, like I don't know what people expect. Like you can't make a commentary on something if you don't mm -hmm. have something to make a commentary on. It's like if yeah. I was to make a movie about how I hate dogs but I don't show a dog. Like I know <laughs> if I hate dogs, I don't want to show them that much. But if I'm passionate enough to hate them in a movie, I'm going to put them in there yeah. obviously to like support my point. Yeah. 
And I think another big point in the film is uh, actually summed up from this line from Jurassic Park. So take a listen to this one. All an illusion. When we have control again. You've never had control. That's the illusion. So I think, you know, they're, they're definitely talking about control there. And that's Control's something... big word. Yeah, it's a big they, word in the Jurassic. They mention it so many times in Jurassic World. Um, and I think, uh, what was it, maybe... Um, Barry or somebody said the key to, to happy life is to accept that you were never actually in control. That was oh, no, Mr. Sorry, that was yeah, he said that. You were never no, actually Barry just in said control. A bunch of French stuff. No, yeah, Barry said another one. I, I must have mixed up my notes here. He said, uh, well, I spe- I speak what if French, they decide so they want to be in control? Yeah, oh, but true. Like... Yeah. So, and then that, that's when um, Hoskins follows it up with extinct animals have no rights. So it's, very, it's a very touchy subject, but they're talking yeah. about control throughout this entire movie. Another great line that, you know, happens in that scene is where, you know, uh, Owen says, you know, maybe progress should lose for a change. And that's again with the like Indominus yeah. Rex, you know, being the ultimate killer. You don't want an ultimate killer. You want something that has a bit of human relations, you know? Yeah. There is no controlling that monster. And, and uh, he was absolutely right when he said that. You know, you don't need to have all these sponsorships. You don't need to do this. And that's what they were, they were trying to commentate on, I believe. Oh, yeah, quite. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're in control in this movie. Claire starts out thinking she's in control. Even Owen thinks he's in control. Um, yeah. and, I mean, he's in that paddock thinking, yeah, all right, everything's fine. Well, he I thinks know he exactly has control because he knows – it's like the statement, you know, the wise yeah. man knows he's ignorant. And even if you know you're <laughs> ignorant, that's going to give you a little bit of a pompous attitude where you think, yeah. oh, well, I know that I don't know stuff. Therefore, I'm smarter than you. Yeah. Well, they're literally trying to control chaos essentially in this movie. And you can kind of – think of the Indominus as chaos. It does what it wants. It goes where it wants. It kills what it wants. Yeah, and there's not much control in it. And all that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and they touch on chaos theory a few times throughout the movie. Um, you know how they did it in Jurassic Park with the water. He dripped it on her hand. And in this film, you yeah. get it with those drops of blood. Blood, Kind of yeah. shows it the opposite directions there. Yeah, and if you think about it, it's even like with – it's kind of topically related, the relationships, you know, one may end in divorce and the other one may just beginning. You know, you never know mm-hmm. where the water is going to fall. Yeah, and that's something that Claire never, you know, thought of for herself, but it might be happening. Yeah. Yeah, I one of the um, – this is a big one I, I like to look at. I've heard other people talk about it. Um, the dying Apatosaurus. Now, do you kind of view this subtly as the death of animatronics in the Jurassic Park series since it was, you know, the last one? Nah, not at all. I, I think it was just more it's coincidental if people read that into it, though mm-hmm. it is sort of a metaphor and a larger thing, but it wasn't done intentionally. The reason it's that way is because you need to sort of emotionally connect with this and so the actors, you know, you're obviously going to emotionally connect. So if yeah. you have to have one puppet in the movie, it's going to be the most emotional. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's where Claire hit her, you know, breaking point. And she finally decided, you know, I need to, to give a damn about these animals. Yeah. And, you know, Bryce Ellis Howard is a lovely actress. You know, she starts, you know, leaking water out of her eyes, you know, crying, whatever it's mm-hmm. called. Yeah. Um, and another one I wanted to touch on here um, is Hoskins. This guy is, you know, a slimy <laughs> yeah. guy throughout the entire movie. Good God, yes. He's very sm- yeah. slimy. And he also thinks he's in control as well. He's got... Um, you know, he thinks he has Barry under control and he thinks he has Owen under control and he's going to get his way no matter what. And, and it's also he, funny, like the the way he goes about having control is like a point of authority. He tries to sort of tame the raptor like Owen does, but Owen has an emotional connection and it's the emotional mm-hmm. connection that wins, not the brute force. Exactly. And it's funny because there's all these foreshadowing moments 
in Jurassic World with Hoskins about what's going to happen to him in the end. Yeah, someone should give him a hand. Yeah, they should. He definitely needs one. There's, there's you so gave many... a nominal like for that role. <laughs> uh, just going out on a limb. You got to. You know, there, there is a few instances. You know, he says, you have them eating out of the palm of your hand. Oh, then, that's lovely. Yeah. And then he talked about, um, I think, a story with the, uh, was his ex-wife, maybe? Yeah, tore a trunk out of the, her yeah, arm. Her, yep, right out of her arm. And then I believe Delta um, looks at what she wants to eat, right? Yeah, so, and then it's just Yeah, there's all <laughs> these instances of him, or him basically foreshadowing his own death. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah. Unintentionally. Yeah. But, you know, there's so many things to look at in this movie. We barely touch the surface. Do you have anything else? Uh, well, I have other things, but they're very, like, sophisticated and probably not very concise at this moment. <laughs> and uh, actually, I feel like we should maybe touch on this real quick. I, I know you do, a, you know, a ton of fan fiction. Uh, is there anything you want to talk about that? Yeah, good God. I confuse my own writings with the actual film, so that's why a lot oh. of my stuff isn't concise. Because I'm like, no, you don't get it. The high heels are a symbol for humanity. And they're like, why would it be a symbol for humanity? I'm like, well, because Claire's <laughs> a stick. Oh, wait, no, she's not. <laughs> so that that's, you know, I, I have the stupid moments. Well, I think I think everybody has those moments because we all assume one thing in our heads. You know, like I was saying about Mizrani misinterpreting Hammond. And, and I actually think, you know, Wu is, is a more evil person than, than he maybe be, he might be. And all these things are in our heads. And your stories, um, I can see it easily confusing with, with some of the stuff on the screen. I have a joke for you. Sure. Knock, knock. Who's there? Wu. Woohoo. You sound excited. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, you know, don't don't really hear too many Jurassic Park jokes. That's the perfect one. <laughs> no, it's really terrible. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, you know, I, I like terrible jokes. It's fun. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think it's probably about time we depart from Site B. I, I called the helicopter right before I met you. So uh, what do you say we gla- grab this thing and get out of here? Yeah, I would very much like to do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, where can people find you before we head off? I'm probably just looking around the internet, you know, uh, behind Jay Bayona's house, mostly. All right, so definitely look there first, and uh, we'll get that message out to Jay to, to definitely look out. <laughs> yeah, don't warn him. I need the element of surprise. True, true. you got to get the scoops, you know. We need somebody on the inside. How much does chloroform go for nowadays? <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Sorry, I was just having a mental breakdown. That's fine. Anyway, I mean, it's it's a desolate place out here on Sorna, so you know your mind's gonna break eventually. Can you kill me off with a raptor? Just have me, have me be eaten by a raptor? That'd be amazing. <laughs> I think I might be able to edit that in. Oh, good. Should I scream? Go ahead. Oh, we just lost her. Well, thank you everybody for joining me on Site B. We'll see you next time. This week I have some amazing audio for you. This dates back to 1993 for the royal premiere of Jurassic Park in London. In this clip, we'll hear from the entire cast. It's pretty spectacular, so take a listen. 
Sam Neill, everybody's talking about the special effects. How impressed were you by them? Well, I was very impressed. I'm impressed to see them on the screen, and I'm impressed. I was impressed on the floor when we were shooting the film. Um, the, the special effects are such that they, they never really feel like special effects. They feel like dinosaurs. Was it quite moving to see your first dinosaur? Well, the first dinosaur was sick, you know, and I always feel sorry for sick animals, and this is a very big sick animal. And he looked so real and kind of pitiable that um, it sort of brought a tear to the eye. But you'll see him in the film, you know. Now, the film has been so successful. Did you expect it to be like this? Well, I thought it would be... I thought it would be a success, you know, I thought, um, I thought all the ingredients were there. We had Spielberg and some great actors and a good script and some pretty good dinosaurs. So the film would, uh, would work and people would like it, but I had no idea that it would take off in the way that it has. It's become sort of this tidal wave type phenomenon. No stopping it. They say you should never work with uh, children or dinosaurs or something like that. You ended up doing both. How was that? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, I survived, you know, and I came out the other end. And, um, and I made some good friends, you know. The kids are good friends of mine. The dinosaurs are not quite as friendly, but, you know, um, we'll probably work together again. Who knows? But you have three children of your own. What do yeah. they think of the film? Well, one of them is seeing it for the first time tonight, and uh, he can't wait. And my oldest one has already seen it, and she seemed absolutely horrified at the time, but she wants to see it another half a dozen times, so I, I guess it worked for her. Are they very impressed that it's their dad up there? Yeah, it's kind of cool to have dad in a film that all their friends are talking about. <laughs> it makes a change. If there is to be a sequel, would you like to be in it? Yeah, but well, particularly if Stephen's directing it, because I think uh, most of the magic of the film is, is largely due to his, you know, to his being at the helm. So I'd very much like to be in it if he's doing it. Now, Michael, the big question on everybody's lips is how likely is all of this to happen? Well, the truth is that it's not really likely at all. I mean, I, I think at some point in the future, we could very well see that we have this ability. And certainly the film is very persuasive, very convincing. You believe what you're seeing now. But I think that part of the pleasure of it is to understand that while this may be in our future, it's certainly not in our present. As far as the film goes, you've left this island. There are all these dinosaurs roaming about on it. What are you going to do? There has to be a sequel. You have to get them all off there. Well, you know, it's, it's, certainly the sequel has been discussed by almost everyone, but at the moment there are no plans for one. So, so at least for now, there's only one Jurassic Park. You're not sitting down at your typewriter and getting it all started again? No, a few thoughts, but, but nothing yet. If you could bring back any creature to life, what would it be? What an odd question. I think I... you mean a dinosaur or any creature? Any creature at all. I'm very fond of dodos. I'd have the dodos back. Bob Peck, you of course are very well known for your classical roles and your work with the RSC. How did you find the whole Hollywood experience? It was very different. Um, something of a holiday for me. Uh, three weeks in Hawaii and then the odd appearance in uh, Universal. And th did you enjoy the whole film though? Yes, very much. Um, I'd never worked in a big um, American studio before. So. And my kids enjoyed LA. Oh, you took them all out, the whole family out there yeah, while you were four, filming? Yeah. What do they think of the end result? Um, well, they didn't sleep at all the night they saw it, but it was very late, and there haven't been any um, bad repercussions since, except they want to see it again. I do, they'll be, they'll be torturing you to get a video of it. Now, the reaction to the film has been absolutely astonishing. Did you ever think it would be this big? Um, well, if you go into a, a movie with Spielberg, I think you have to expect something like this. 
Are you lured to Hollywood? Will you be heading back there again to do more films? Give them the right part. Interesting work. You're open to offers. Uh, I'm open to offers, yes. Thank you. Ariana, even though you knew that all of those dinosaurs were just kind of models and everything, were there any times when they are a bit scary close up? Yeah, there, there were a few times when I was shooting on the set. They are just so real. And, and really the dinosaurs, they're actually there with us almost the whole time. And they're really like alive creatures right there with you, living and breathing creatures. And some of them are so scary. Like, they're not even hard to be scared of, like the T-Rex. And there's this one scene of the T-Rex I always remember um, so vividly as being even frightening to film because it was just so real. It was um, when I'm in the car with Joe Mazzello, and we have that um, plastic bubble over us, which is the top of the Jeep, and the T-Rex is over us, and it's crashing down on top of us, and we're screaming, and it's, it's biting this plastic thing, and it was so scary. It was actually biting it there, and it left teeth marks on it. Oh, no. So those were real screams. Yeah, it wasn't too hard. <laughs> Did you enjoy working with Steven Spielberg? Oh, he was great. He, was, he just made everything so fun. He's really like a great friend that's just this absolute genius. He, he's just amazing. He's so creative. I mean, he'll make up things right on the spot and just change scenes to be totally different, but then they're so much better. And every single time, it's just so amazing. He just really made it so fun for us. Stephen, it's absolutely terrific to see you in London. What do you think of the reception outside? Fantastic. This is amazing. I mean, they're making more noise than the Tyrannosaurus Rex out there right now. Uh, that's a pretty good feat. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the film, what, what do you see as the difference between science fact and science fiction? Well, everything in the movie really is what I call science eventuality. They've actually been able to uh, get a portion of DNA from a, uh, you know, a, a mosquito that was preserved in amber for something like 60 million years. And because of the nature of the science and because of our, our own technology, which is leap, you know, leaping into the future, that uh, Michael Crichton found a great notion to base a dinosaur movie on. And it, it gave it an entire foundation of complete uh, credibility for me. And I took that approach in making the movie that I wanted it to be very credible so the incredible wouldn't seem impossible. Dinosaurs have got immense popularity as well. What is their appeal, do you think? I don't know. I think uh, I was nuts about dinosaurs when I was a kid. I, I think it was the first time I ever, I ever learned. I think my, my, my third or fourth word was, you know, triceratops. Uh, Very impressive. <laughs> I, I, I just think that the kids have a fascination with things that are bigger than them, and they love playing with the little dinosaur toys as children. I did, certainly, because I was able to lord over the rulers of, you know, you know the world for 250 million years. And the great thing, of course, is they're dead. Yeah, but you know, it, it's it's great, not so great. In in a way, I think it's it's wonderful that they're a part of, you know, a, there's a mystery about dinosaurs. I think that's why the un, the uncovery of bones in Montana or in Canada, wherever they find dinosaur bones today, is like a great mystery. And 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 uh, and then what we did with this movie was we sort of fleshed them out and uh, created a scenario that uh, one day could possibly happen. Certainly not in the near future, but someday in the distant future, I believe. Mr. Richard, this is the first time you've been back on screen since 79. What was it about this particular role which kind of tempted you back? Oh, it wasn't the role, it was Steven Spielberg. I've uh, known him for about 10 or 12 years, and he'd asked me on two occasions previously to play in a movie. The last one was Hook, and I couldn't do it. And this time he, uh, he said, look, I know you're finishing Chaplin. Tell me when you have to be in England. Tell me when you have to do your music and your dubbing and so on. And we will schedule around you being back in England. Well, 
being an actor, I'm totally susceptible to flattery. You see, That's so. the most flattery of all. Now, in the book, your character has Much sort of killed oh, yes. off and everything, yes, and all yes. actors like a good death scene. Yes, did yes. you feel a bit cheated? I did. Actually, I read the book, and I thought, my God, a marvellous death scene. I then got the script, and I was totally shattered. And, and I was talking to one of the executives at Universal and said, do you like the script? And I said, it's a marvellous script, yeah. But I have no death scene. And he said, do you want a death scene or a sequel? And you talked to your so bank said, manager and you thought... <laughs> well, my bank manager said a sequel. I think so. <laughs> now, as a director, I mean, obviously you know how an awful lot of these special effects are done, but were you impressed with them when you saw them on oh, screen? Oh, I think they're extraordinary. I've, I've never, I genuinely have never seen anything like it. I thought that I would, when I saw the film about uh, ten days ago, I thought, well, I'll go in and I'll think of how they did this and how they did that and so on. And after about half an hour, I didn't give a damn how they did it. I mean, I thought they were unbelievable. I mean, they are unbelievable. They are... You cannot... I mean, there's, there's one shot where Sam and the two kids, who are my grandchildren, are running up a hill and they are pursued by a whole herd of animals who overtake them. Now, how... I mean, it's beyond my comprehension. I don't understand how they did You're not telling me they weren't really there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Well, Jeff Goldblum, you start the star as the eccentric mathematician. You have to explain quite a lot of kind of complicated theories. Did you understand all that stuff, or did you have somebody kind of passing you bits of paper and telling you about it? Karen, I, um, I read a book or two before I started and got in touch with the guys who, who actually know about it, and I learned enough to fake it, you know, but it's um, interesting stuff. Chaos mathematics, it says that life is uh, ultimately dangerous and unpredictable and uncontrollable. Absolutely. How was it acting to nothing? It was fine. There were a couple of scenes where the brilliant special effects people had us act to nothing and, and put in dinosaur images later. And it's, uh, it was fun, you know. It's like being a kid playing dinosaur. Didn't they sort of give you a stick with a, with a head a on guy, it? <laughs> a guy holding a big long stick with a face and uh, just going and going. Uh, what about filming in Hawaii? Was that fun? Very much fun. It was a beautiful uh, paradise of an island before Hurricane Aniki hit on the last day. Very intense, and sad affair. Fun. I believe Sir Richard Attenborough slept through most of the hurricane. He was cool as a cucumber and heroic. The dinosaurs are so popular at the moment. What do you think the appeal is? I don't know. It's kind of mysterious, isn't it? I guess they've always been really popular, though. Um, I mean, to think that they were around here and that they were so big, and it's startling. Would you like to have met think. one? Met one? Well, I did. I do. I get a chance. I absolutely love this clip because it showcases the coolest people in the world back in 1993. Well, who, who am I kidding? They're still the coolest people. It's fantastic to hear from them right around the release of the film with the same voices, the same coolness, and the same wonder they had even before this became a huge sensation. I'll post a link to the video in the show notes. You won't want to miss watching it. Thanks for listening to the 51st episode of the Jurassic Park podcast. Of course, I'd like to thank Lord Christine for joining me here today. It's super interesting to dig deep into Jurassic World, especially when so many have looked at it for what it seems to be on the surface. Uh, make sure to go follow her on Twitter at Lord underscore Christine. Now do me a favor. Go back and watch Jurassic World 
even if you didn't love it, and try to look at it through the context we've given you here in this episode. And then report back, let us know what you think. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to interact with us, we do most of our work over on Twitter, at Jurassic Park Pod. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jurassic Park Podcast. And our Instagram handle is at Jurassic Park Podcast. You can listen to us via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Podomatic, YouTube, or wherever else podcasts are found. So make sure to subscribe to get new episodes every week. If you haven't already, please give it a five-star review in iTunes or a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. It will seriously help our rankings and make it easier for fans like you to find us. We're usually spotted commenting on the Jurassic Park subreddit as Jurassic Park Podcast. Don't forget to check out our show notes for all the links you heard here today. If you want to get a hold of us, you can email us with any news stories, MP3s, segment ideas, pictures, top tens, or comments to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. If you would like to record something for the show, send it in to us and we'll feature it in an upcoming episode. If you don't have anybody to record, you can give our voicemail a call and leave us a message. That number is 732-825-7763. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Drop what you're doing and leave now.